Anyway, yeah, okay, mate. Let me pray for you. number of us were together at City Church in Canterbury for, I don't know how many years together. A long time. In fact, we've traveled to Vietnam together with Bob and with Jenny as well. Good memories have been made. Jeff is a man of the word, definitely. I've, I've heard him preach. I've seen him in private. He's a man who loves God's word as much as I trust you do as well. And I'm just really looking forward to see what God's birthed in him for us to hear. Might be Jeff speaking, but we're going to be trusting it's God's word. Amen. So let me just pray for you. Lord, we just thank you so much for what you've uh, put on Jeff's heart for us, what you've helped him prepare. But Lord, we ask that you will now come. Holy Spirit, as much as you've been involved in the prep, will you be involved, involved in the delivery as well? Just right now, Holy Spirit, will you come and open our hearts? Will you expose areas of our hearts that have, we've been keeping closed off maybe? Help us to listen. Help us to process. But Lord, more importantly, help us to step into what you're asking us to step into this morning, we pray. Just help Jeff to, to deliver what you've given him as your messenger. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, mate. Good morning, everyone. Is that coming through okay? You can all hear me? Wonderful. If you've got your Bibles, do you want to turn to uh, the Gospel of John? We're going to be in John chapter 8 uh, this morning. And I uh, have the real privilege of continuing your series, looking at the I Am sayings of Jesus. Is this the last one in your series? In this is, no, you've got some more to come? Okay, great. One more to come. Um, just to give you a little bit of context before we read the scripture this morning in terms of uh, where Jesus is, basically, and when this, when this conversation is taking place. Uh, it's something called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booze. We'll explain a little bit more uh, about what that is in a moment. Um, and Jesus is speaking in the temple, and I think it's fair to say that he is he's speaking to a divided crowd. So there's been a lot of conversation going on as Jesus has been talking in different contexts, and there is split opinion as to who Jesus is. Some people think or are beginning to wonder and question, is this, is this the Messiah? Is this the promised uh, anointed one, the Christ promised in the Old Testament who's going to come and deliver the people? Or is this a prophet? And then there are many others, most of whom on the kind of more religious side of the spectrum, who uh, for them that news is completely unpalatable. And so they think, no, no, this is, this is none of those things. This is a blasphemer. This man has a demon. So as Jesus is sharing these different things, there is split opinion amongst the people. And some people are, uh, are for him at this stage, and some people are very much against him. But no one's ambivalent to him. No one's apathetic. And the thing that I find is that when you really look at the things that Jesus says... He doesn't really leave you the option of shrugging your shoulders and going, well, I, I, it doesn't really make any difference to me. No, it makes, a, it makes a massive difference. And you see that in the response of the crowd. He, he demands our attention. And it's my prayer this morning that he would captivate our attention afresh. So we're going to read from verse 12 uh, down to verse 20 in chapter 8 of John's Gospel. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. 
in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, the gift of your word. And Holy Spirit, we just invite you to open our hearts afresh this morning, Lord. We we come with expectation to hear from you. Lord, I pray that you would help me to just share to these dear people Lord, what it is that you want to speak to them. How amazing it is that you, the God of the universe, uh, speak to us. That you, the God of the universe, dwell in us by your Holy Spirit. And that you bring revelation, Lord. And that you speak into our hearts, into our situations, into our challenges, Lord. That you know exactly where each of us are. And one message can be preached that speaks into every different heart and life. And that's our prayer this morning. Lord, that you would just come and speak to us. And that you would change us for your glory. We ask that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The thing that uh, underpins all of the I am sayings that Jesus makes and that are recorded in the Gospel of John is this really question around who, who is Jesus? All of the I am sayings, it may sound obvious to say that, but they are, they are grand, significant statements of identity. And I would put it to you this morning, that question, who is Jesus? That question that the crowds are grappling with at this time. Who is this man who says such things is the most important question that you can ever ask in life. There is no more important question than that question of who is Jesus? And as Jesus speaks in these different ways and he makes these different I am statements, he is making some uh, outrageous claims outrageous claims about his identity. And what I want to do this morning is really just focus, build our message around just the first verse that we read, although we will make references to other verses as well. This statement that Jesus makes in verse 12 where it says, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Who is this Jesus? He is saying, I am the light of the world which if you've been in church for any length of time, you will be very familiar with that phrase. You'll be very familiar probably with the song, Light of the World. You know, we, we know it so well that it can lose its impact. And what I want us to do this morning is to ask the question, but what does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world? And what difference does that make to my life? And so to answer that, we're going to be looking at three things. We're going to look at our uh, need for the light, so the fact that we need the light, the invitation to know the light, and then thirdly, the call to reflect the light. So firstly then, let's think about uh, needing the light. The first thing that we need to do is understand why this statement of Jesus is such a big deal. You know, when it comes to the I am statements of Jesus, as I said, they are significant, outrageous claims about his identity. And yet, this one maybe doesn't have the the same kind of immediate impact that some of the other ones do. You know, kind of when Jesus stands up and he says, I am the resurrection and the life, and then a few moments later raises Lazarus from the dead. That's like, that's like a mic drop moment. That's like, boom, you know, I am the resurrection. Look, here's this guy who was dead and he's now alive. That's saying something significant. Or a little bit later on, and the conversation goes this way as the crowd begins to get even more fractious, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. 
And he's making the most explicit, definitive statement of his divinity. He's saying, uh, God has revealed to Moses as the I am. That, that's, who I, that's who I am. That's me. We share that identity. And it's such an outrageous thing that people pick up stones to stone him. And then you have some I am statements that, that maybe don't quite have that kind of impact. I'm the bread of life. It's like, okay, that, that's nice. You know, like bread is nice and we all need to eat bread. Or this one, I am the light of the world. Okay, well, that's kind of, kind of nice, but maybe doesn't have the same immediate impact. And yet what we've got to understand is that Jesus is saying something very significant and outrageous. And we can see that from the response from the Pharisees straight away. They don't shrug their shoulders. They immediately refute it. We see in verse 13, it says, So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. So Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. And their response is, No, you're not. No, you are not the light of the world. And so we've got to ask, Well, why did they have such a big deal uh, and a big problem with Jesus saying that he was the light of the world? And so I want us to spend a few moments thinking a little bit about what he might mean there and thinking a little bit about that picture of him as the light. It's interesting, isn't it? In this country particularly, we have a very uh, interesting relationship with the, with the sunshine. You know, like when, when the sun comes out, we all go a little bit crazy. It's like, I, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of us had barbecues yesterday. It's like, as soon as the sun comes out, we're down the shops, we're getting the barbecues, the shops sell out of rolls and sausages. You know, yesterday we were in the garden with the paddling pool out and the slip and slide out, and I went to Home Bargains and bought water pistols. It's like, we get so few days of sunshine. It's like, we've got to make the most of it. You know, the beaches are crammed, the parks are crammed, the guys have taken their tops off. It could be February. But if the sun is out, you know, the guys are taking their tops out. And then you get the other kind of response, which is we complain about uh, the weather so much and how cold it is. And then as soon as the sun comes out, we're like, oh, it's too hot for me. It, it's, it's too hot. I don't like the sun. I like to keep myself indoors when it's sunny. We have this strange relationship with sunshine and with light. And yet, I think we would all agree that the sun and light is, is central to our very existence. And actually, if you think about it, all of life depends upon the light and the heat of the sun. If we didn't have the sun, we wouldn't be here. If, I've heard it said that if the sun was, was any further away, it couldn't sustain life. If the sun was ever any closer, we'd all get burnt off. We, the sun is perfectly placed to provide for all of our needs. You know, the light that guides us to be able to see in the day and work, the sun that gives us energy and enables us to be able to grow things. Without the sun, we wouldn't be able to exist. Have you ever seen any of these post-apocalyptic films like Blade Runner? All, there's, there's no sun anywhere. You know, life is miserable and oppressive and, and difficult because the sun's not there anymore. And as much as we recognize that, now recognize our kind of need and dependence upon the sun. I think because we obviously live in a culture where when the sun goes down, you know, the, the, the light switches go on. We live in a culture where we talk about cities that never sleep. You know, there's, there's not that same, we've lost that kind of natural rhythm of day and of night. And yet, obviously in Jesus' time and in his culture, they would have recognized the, I guess, the essential nature of the sun and its importance and their life being almost built around the rhythm of the sun and the day and the night much more than we do now. The reality is, in Jesus' time, when the sun went down, life pretty much stopped. 
You know, yeah, you could light a lamp and a fire and stuff, but people didn't really travel around much at, at nighttime because of the dangers, and life slowed down. They needed light to get up and get around. They needed light to work. And so life started when the sun rose. And so in one sense, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, could he be saying, I am the morning sunrise? Could he be saying, I'm the bringer of life? Could he be saying, I'm the one who brings you relief? Could he be saying, I'm the one who can guide you? Could he be saying, I am the source of all life? And he absolutely could be saying all of those things, and all of those things are true about Jesus. And yet, actually, there's a much deeper meaning behind Jesus' statement, I am the light of the world, because there's what light means in a spiritual sense, which tells us a lot about Jesus' identity. You see, in the Old Testament, where they talked about light, they equated light as a symbol for, for God. You know, light as a symbol for God's presence. Psalm 27, verse 1 says, The Lord is my light, my light and my salvation. God is my light. And so for Jesus to say, no, no, I, I am the light, to a group of people who assign the light to the identity of Yahweh himself, this is no small statement that Jesus is saying. And it helps us to understand as well when Jesus is saying this. You know, Jesus uh, was very deliberate in when he said what he said. It's not an accident that Jesus is making this great declaration at this point. As I mentioned at the start, at, the, at this point they are celebrating in Jerusalem the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And this feast was uh, celebrated on an annual basis and it was all about remembering the time that Israel were in the wilderness. So when they'd been delivered from Egypt and then their time where they, they dwelt in temporary booths and tabernacles and yet God provided for all of their needs. And it's also about them looking forward to the kind of messianic age when the, the, the river of God will come down upon his people. And so everybody is celebrating this. And there are two main kind of aspects to this celebration, the Feast of Tabernacles. The first is around when, when the priests took water and they, they poured it upon the altar. And so you read in uh, John chapter 7, if you turn back the page, the famous moment where Jesus stands up and he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You need to understand that when he's saying that, that's at the exact moment that this kind of uh, great ceremony of pouring the water upon the altar is happening. And Jesus is kind of standing up and saying, This is, this is me. This is what I've come to do. This symbol points towards me. If anyone's thirsty, come to me to me. And the other thing that happened, which uh, links into what Jesus is saying here when he says, I am the light of the world, is that they would light these enormous kind of candelabras in the temple courts that would burn kind of in, during the night across the, across the celebration, and that would fill the, the temple with light, and that would be able to be seen in all of Jerusalem, and that were a reminder of the, the pillar of fire that the, the people of Israel followed in the desert. And again, this declaration of God's light being over the people. And so when, when at the climax of kind of the whole week of celebration, they, they are lighting these great big candelabras, Jesus is standing up and saying, I am the light of the world. These lights 
that speak of God's light and guiding and provision and rescue and promise. This is about me. These, these are symbols that point towards me. You've celebrated the symbol. Now celebrate the person, the reality, the fulfillment of that symbol. I am the light of the world. And so that's why the claim is such a big deal. But it's not just the claim that's a big deal. It's what the claim suggests or what the claim confronts in the hearers that is also a big deal. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And what Jesus is saying there, essentially, is if you don't follow me, you are in darkness. And to a Jew at that time, to, to hear that, to be told that you're in darkness, is like the most offensive thing. That you can't, you can't compute it. Because actually, for the Jews, they believed that they, they were the light of the world. They were called to be the light of the world. And yet here Jesus is saying, if you don't follow me, you are in darkness. And the reality is that Jesus' revelation of his identity challenges their identity. That's why they find it such a difficult thing, so unpalatable. And that was true for them, and it's also true for us. That the revelation of Jesus' true identity always challenges our own identity. Because the truth is that we, we live in a world that's in darkness, don't we? We live in a world that is in darkness. And Jesus came to bring the light. He's the light that comes into the darkness. But John 3.19 tells us the light has come into the world. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light. And so that's why the, the, the message of you are in darkness is so difficult for the world to hear. Because sin has conditioned the human heart to love darkness so that it doesn't even recognize what darkness is anymore. Have you ever worked, been sitting in a room, maybe at a desk, and you're sitting by the window, and maybe you start working kind of the early afternoon, and you just keep working, and as, as the room gets darker and darker, you don't, you don't notice, because your eyes are accustomed to the increasing darkness around you, and it's only when somebody comes into the room, and they're like, whoa, it's like so dark in here, do you want me to turn the light on? And you're like, oh, is it dark? I hadn't, hadn't even really noticed. And I think that's a picture of the state of the world, that actually people are so accustomed to the darkness, their hearts are so adapted to the darkness, they don't even recognize what darkness is anymore. And what they need is somebody to come in and say, whoa, it's dark in here. Do you want me to turn the light on? And that's the call on the life of the Christian. That's the call, God's call on, on you this morning, if you're a Christian, to encounter and engage with people who, who are in darkness and don't even realize it. They need someone to come in and say, whoa, you realize you're, you're living in darkness, but let me, let me show you where the light is. And we'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. But also there's, a, I guess, a, a warning to us here this morning, if you'd call yourself a Christian, that it's easy for our hearts to do the same. 
it's easy for our hearts to get drawn into, into things that actually uh, darken our hearts without us really even noticing. And we need to make sure that we continue to dwell in the light and allow God's light to shine into our hearts on a daily basis to keep us in line with him. So we all need the light. That's the first point. The second point is that there's this amazing invitation to come and know the light. We read in verse uh, 18, Jesus says, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Now, there's a, there's a heartbreaking kind of truth there that Jesus is confronting them with, saying, you don't know me and you don't know my Father. And again, that would have been a, a you know, if, if they recognized that he was talking about God, that would have been a really shocking thing for them. But there's also this amazing kind of promise that if you, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. That if you know me, there's an invitation, come and know me and come and know the Father, come and know the light. And I think in the world, most, most people are looking for some kind of light. Most people are looking for some kind of meaning, some kind of reason, some kind of purpose, some direction, some sense of identity. They're looking for the light. People want the light. But the problem is that they're, they're looking in the wrong place. And the problem is that we live in a world that's full of false lights. I saw a, a program a few years ago about um, kind of deep sea diving and, and caving. And obviously when you're deep sea diving and you're caving, it's a very dark environment, particularly deep sea diving, a very dangerous environment uh, because obviously you only have a limited amount of oxygen. And uh, they describe this thing that happens sometimes in both situations, caving or deep sea diving, where you can be swimming along or caving along and, and look and see what, what looks like light. And, or what looks like the surface of the water. And so you, you head in the direction of that. And actually, when you get there, there's something like phosphorus or something kind of chemical in the water. You get there and you realize it's, it's just an illusion. It's not actually light or it's an illusion. It's not actually the surface of the water. It's just kind of clearer water. And you've headed in the direction of what you think will bring you relief. And all it's done is bring you into deeper darkness. And that's what happens with the false lights that the world offers us. They, they promise us freedom, but what they deliver is death. And there's so many lights that are, or lights, that are vying for our attention. So many lights that are saying, this way, follow me. I will bring you fulfillment. I'll bring you wholeness. I'll bring you freedom. I'll bring you satisfaction. I'll bring you relief. And none of them are able to follow through. Things like ambition, saying, follow me. Success, money, sex, celebrity, education, popularity. All of these things, they look like lights that the world is running after. And yet all they do is lead into darkness. There's a famous moment in the story of The Hobbit, which I'm sure many of you will know, where uh, the dwarves and Bilbo have to travel through the forest of Mirkwood on their journey uh, to the mountain. And Gandalf isn't going to go with them, but he gives them a stern warning. Make sure you stay on the path. Don't leave the path. Whatever happens, 
And as they're journeying through Mirkwood, they begin to see the, the lights of elvish feasts and they hear the music and their hearts are drawn towards these things that they think will do them good. And they're wrestling, oh, shall I leave the path? Shall I not leave the and in the end, they, they leave the path and they end up in captivity. The lights that promised so much actually just lead them into slavery. And that can happen happens to people who aren't Christians. That's their kind of state. But it can also happen to people who are Christians. That we set out on the path and yet the, the lights lure us away from following wholeheartedly after Jesus. And we kind of can kid ourselves in thinking, well, it's all right. it doesn't matter if I step a little bit away from the path because as long as I can still see the path, I'm all right. I can indulge in this or I can indulge in that. I can pursue this as well as, as, well as Jesus because as long as I can still see the path, I can always get back to the path. There's always a way back to the path, so it doesn't really matter. And then before we know it, we can't see the path anymore. We've lost sight of the direction that we were heading in and then we need somebody to draw us back. When we talk about people who we refer to as prodigals, that's what we're saying. People who, whose hearts have wandered away you know, there's that famous line, isn't there? I think it's in, uh, oh, I forget what the song is now, but the line says, prone to wander. Lord, my feet, you know, my heart, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. And all of us are susceptible to that. And so we have a responsibility to help one another to stay on the path. And when we see brothers and sisters leaning away, moving away, being drawn to things, to false lights, Draw them back, say, no, no, keep your, keep your heart and your mind and your affections on the true light. That's what Jesus is. That's what John describes Jesus as in John chapter 1, the true light. Every other light comes and goes. Jesus is the true light. He's the light that burns brightly forever. At the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, they, they stopped the burning of those lights and yet the light of Jesus is forever burning. And many across the centuries have tried to snuff out the light of Christ from Herod to Caesar to many other leaders and nations and rulers. And yet the reality is, the encouragement is, that they are no more. And yet Jesus is still a light. He still stands above it all. He's the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. And that's an amazing encouragement, isn't it? It's an encouragement when we look at the state of the world and sometimes we think it doesn't feel like Jesus as the light is overcoming the darkness. Like it feels like the darkness is kind of winning. And we can kind of think that even on our own, in our own lives, in our own personal experiences. Sometimes oh, it feels like the darkness is winning. And yet, on a global scale and on a personal scale, we can be confident that Jesus is the light that overcomes the darkness. The darkness will not overcome it. The darkness cannot overcome it. His light shines for eternity. And what an amazing thing that we are invited to know this true light. And yet, many people reject it. We'll know that. That's our experience. That's why uh, this room, it's why where we meet in Whitstable, it's why our, 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 our places of worship are not overflowing with people spilling out of the door because we live in towns where the majority of people are rejecting the light. 
So why? Why would you why would you reject this incredible light that brings so much relief and rescue? And the reason that you would, the reason that people do, is because it's also a light that exposes. It's not just a light that brings relief, it's a light that exposes. I am not a big fan of clothes shopping. Uh, you can probably tell. I don't like to go clothes shopping very often. Um, and one of the reasons that I don't like to is because I find the, uh, the process of trying on new clothes in a changing room incredibly traumatic. Firstly, I don't understand why there are so many mirrors in a change room. Like, do you need that many mirrors? Why do I need to see my body from every single conceivable angle? But the other thing I don't like about it is, is the intensity of the fluorescent light that they put in changing rooms. I don't understand it because surely they want you to buy their clothes, but every time I try on clothes, I think I look horrendous. I'm not buying this clothes. It's weird. Like you could, you could be at home and you might catch yourself in the mirror in a dark room and think, oh, I look okay today. You know, I feel happy with my appearance. And then you stand in a changing room and you just think, Oh, that's awful. Like every single like spot and blemish and wrinkle and roll without getting into too much detail is, is, is kind of exposed. And you sit, you think, I'm never taking my clothes off again in public or private. Like this is just around. I'm going to wear full, just no, no, nothing is going to be seen because the light exposes your blemishes. And that's, that's what God's light does as well. We didn't read it, but if we'd carried on reading in chapter 8, in verse 24, Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And that reality that all of us are blemished and all of us are sinful is, is the reason that people reject the light, because they don't want to hear that. They don't want, want to hear that they, they need rescuing. They don't want to hear that they are, are blemished and need cleansing. And yet gloriously, the light of Jesus is not just a light that exposes. Amazingly, it's also a light that cleanses. Now, this was news to me, but I don't know if you know that light can cleanse. Light itself can actually clean. So there was a study in 2018 where they basically filled a number of small rooms with dust, and they let varying degrees of sunlight into these rooms. And what they found was that the rooms that were exposed to the greatest level of sunlight were actually cleaner than the rooms that weren't. That the sunlight killed off bacteria. It killed off germs. It made the room cleaner. And so God's light, yeah, it exposes. It shows us our blemishes. It shows us our need to be cleansed. And yet the same light by the blood of Jesus cleanses us as well. The Holy Spirit living in us, cleansing us and making us more like Jesus, when we expose our hearts to God's light, it cleanses us. So we've looked at needing the light, we've looked at knowing the light. So just to wrap up finally, let's think about the call to reflect the light. John is very deliberate in the way that he writes his gospel, in the bits that he chooses to include and the order that he chooses to include them in. And what you will see in the structure of John's gospel essentially is a, an echo of the Exodus story. You see it in the feeding of the 5,000, the reference to bread, in the, in the reference to water, in the reference to light. The point that John is, is subtly making is that Jesus has come to lead a new Exodus. 
that actually where the Exodus was about God's deliverance of the people and, and bringing them out of slavery into the promised land. That whole amazing episode that was at the very epicenter of, of the Jewish faith, that in itself pointed towards something much greater. Jesus coming is the main event. That was like the pre-Exodus. This is the real and the true Exodus. And just as Israel followed the pillar of fire, now Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. Now, if you want to come and be delivered out of darkness, come and follow me and I will lead you to the promised land. But Israel were called not just to follow the light, they were also called to reflect the light. Isaiah 49, verse 6, God says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That has always been God's heart. That his salvation, that the glory of his name would reach to the ends of the earth. From his commission to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. From his commission to Joshua to go into the land and establish his rule and reign. To Jesus' commission to his disciples to go out and make disciples. It's always about being about his salvation extending to the very ends of the earth. His glory covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's always been the mission. It's never changed. It always will be the mission. And the way that Israel were called to outwork that was to follow God obediently and reflect his heart and through their prosperity and obedience the nations would come to them and they would worship and glorify God. And they couldn't do it. They couldn't fulfill that call upon them which is why Jesus comes as the true Israel and yet the call upon the people of God hasn't changed. We're called to be a light to the nations. It's amazing, isn't it, that Jesus makes this incredible statement about himself. I am the light of the world. And yet also he says exactly the same thing to his disciples. You are the light of the world. There's a sense of shared identity there. He is the light of the world. But also we, the church, is the light of the world. Now obviously it's not the same light in one sense because Jesus is the source but it's his light shining through us. When Paul writes to Philippians, he encouraged them to shine as lights in this crooked and twisted generation. And the light that we shine is not the light of our uh, personality. It's not the light of our charisma. It's not the light of our projects. It's not the light of uh, our abilities or gifts. It's, it's his light shining through us. You've ever seen light shining through a prism where you have the one source of light, single white light that goes into the prism, and then the multicolored variety of light that comes out in all directions out of the prism. And I think that's what it means for us to be the light of the world. It's God's light shining in us and then out in all the multifaceted ways and all the differences of our personalities and giftings, which means what I look like to be a light is different to what you look like to be a light, but the source is the same. It's God's light. It's his light that comes to convict and to offer relief and to invite. And so with this I will finish. The brightness of our light is not about... Like I said, our gifts, our abilities, our personalities, the brightness of our light to a world in darkness is about our position. If the prism is not in line with the light, it produces no light. 
The prison does nothing to create the light. The prison needs to be positioned before the light, and then out of it comes light. And so when we're talking about what does it look like for us to reflect the light, to fulfill God's call upon us, to be the light for you guys, to fulfill that call upon you, to be the light here in Herne Bay. It's about where you are positioned. If we position ourselves before the light of Christ, His light will shine through us. It's not about manufacturing something or working up an effort. It's no, I will position myself before God and allow his light to shine through me.